Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. As the coronavirus spread in 2020, the federal government took an unprecedented step to protect public health. The CDC issued an eviction moratorium that was intended to prevent people from being tossed out on the street during the crisis. But reporting that we'll share on today's episode shows that the impact of that measure was extremely dependent on state and local enforcement. We're talking evictions here in the Bay Area, around California, and across the nation as eviction bans continue to expire. Did the CDC's measure work? And are we about to see a wave of evictions that will put more people out onto our streets? We'll discuss after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Over the last 10 years, social scientists have made the case that evictions aren't just a consequence of financial and social hardship. They're also a cause of further decline in people's quality of life. Housing provides stability, and losing it in an eviction can mean the difference between a tough time becoming a short-term situation or a spiral down into chronic homelessness. At the same time, mom-and-pop landlords especially can find themselves in very difficult situations financially and emotionally. The pandemic put unprecedented economic pressure on all kinds of people. Many people lost their jobs. The federal government rolled out both rent relief and an eviction moratorium, which is the subject of both the last season of KQED's podcast Sold Out and a new Frontline documentary that debuts today, Facing Eviction. Joining us to talk about this complex and dynamic eviction situation, we're joined by Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter with KQED and co-host of Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America podcast from KQED. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Bonnie Bertram, a producer and writer with Retro Report, who partnered with Frontline on the documentary Facing Eviction, which is what debuts today. Welcome. Hi. And we're joined by Manuela Tobias, who is housing reporter for Cal Matters Indispensable Publication. Thanks for joining us, Manuel. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Aaron, let's start with you. I mean, you spent a whole season of uh, your podcast sold out focusing on evictions. Uh, so for people who aren't familiar with evictions, what is an eviction? Is there a difference between just kind of losing your apartment and being evicted in a court proceeding? Um, well, you know, I think that kind of depends on who you talk to. I think the way that I came to define uh, eviction in my reporting was when a landlord, uh, you know, required you to leave the the, the property, whether that was with a formal 
three-day written notice that said you had to pay up and get out or, or change some kind of behavior and leave, or whether it was just saying, hey, look, uh, we're not going to rent this apartment anymore, so you need to leave mm-hmm. by a certain date. Um, I think there's some sort of, you know, there's informal evictions and then there's formal evictions. But if the result is that you are involuntarily leaving your space, then I consider mm-hmm. that an eviction. So why does it happen? I mean, is it only because of not paying rent or are there a wider variety of factors? Non-payment of rent is definitely the number one factor that we see uh, as like the primary cause for eviction. But, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why people can get evicted, um, you know, threats to public health or safety. Um, if you break your lease, um, if the landlord wants to move in um, or or move a family member in, uh, if the landlord wants to sell the property and take it off the rental market. So there's the number of reasons you can be evicted, whether, you know, including things that you may have had nothing to do with, yeah. uh, for example, if the landlord wanted to remove the property from the rental market. What do what do you think people don't really understand or know about how evictions work, at least here in our area? Um, you know, I think that there are, you know, people see, uh, you know, think that most of the time when people get evicted, it's because they did something wrong. Um, maybe they didn't pay the, you know, rent or, um they were causing a problem in the unit. But I think that, you know, when we, what we found in our reporting was that evictions are really complicated. And usually it's not one event, it's a series of events um, that can lead to an eviction. Maybe there was an illness in the family um, or a job loss or some other factor that kind of precipitated someone getting behind on rent. Um, And so, you know, what we found is that these cases are really complicated and, and they also have really long lasting impacts. Um, you know, you mentioned in the top just how destabilizing evictions are, but, you know, we know that they lead to long-term health impacts, um, short-term health impacts. They're bad for pregnant women and their babies. They're bad for children and their educational outcomes. They can lead to people living in worse housing, um, you know, maybe with mold or uh, poor air quality or, or in less safe neighborhoods. And so we know that they really, uh, you know, as you said earlier, they have these compounding effects and, and really intangible costs that are, are hard to quantify. Yeah. So we do understand that these are complex situations and, and we want to hear from you. Have you ever been involved, involved in an eviction? And what was your experience? We understand it could be in any of these different roles. The number is 866-733-6786. That's, you know, have you been involved in an eviction? 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, of course, or KQED Forum, or you can email uh, forum at kqed.org with your story. Bonnie Bertrand, you spent more than a year reporting on eviction cases nationwide for this documentary, Facing Eviction. What were some of the commonalities that you saw, you know, across the nation, regardless of where they happen? The common thing that we found was how uncommon every it played out, depending on mm. where you lived. Mm. I mean, sort of backing what what Aaron was talking about, um, the compounding effect of having been evicted. We sort of backed it up from there, and we we wanted to capture this unprecedented and historic moment in time when 
you know, basically President Trump said, okay, everybody freeze, you know, and they instituted a national moratorium first through the CARES Act. But the way it actually played out was a lot more hodgepodge than that sort of mm -hmm. national policy would suggest. So um, California, for example, has pretty good history and track record of a lot of tenant protections. Um, other places, you know, there are a handful of states that had no state protections. But if you drill down just from the state, then to like the county and then to the city level, it varied so much, you know, neighbor to neighbor, even depending on what judge you got in housing court and, and who your sheriff was who came to actually enforce yeah. the eviction. Well, you spend a lot of time down in Texas, and I want to play some audio from the Frontline documentary Facing Eviction, which we hear Dallas County Judge uh, Katina Whitfield explain her approach to ruling on eviction cases. Just a reminder, in Texas, local judges had a lot of discretion over whether to, uh, to follow the CDC ban on evictions. Let's listen. I have to visit the moral obligation a lot more because the legal obligation is in black and white. The Texas federal court judge did state that the CDC moratorium is not constitutional. I have mixed feelings about it because we have the tenants that we know were affected. It does not take into account the gray areas. And that's the reason why I listen to both sides, because once you do that, that gray area is going to be exposed. A lot of the people who were truly affected by COVID, they're no better now than they were a year ago. We're talking about them losing their homes or their kids will have to be withdrawn from school, whatever, you know. The stakes are high. So if we have that type of situation, number one, y'all need to understand it. You know, put yourself in their shoes. That was from the Frontline documentary Facing Eviction, an eviction judge, a Texas judge. I wanted to ask you, uh, Bonnie Bertram, you know, going kind of hand in hand with the moratorium was also this rental relief program, which your documentary focuses a lot on. Can you tell us a little bit more about how it was supposed to kind of work in, in conjunction with the moratorium? So the first, the CARES Act, which uh, was implemented in the earliest days of the pandemic in March of 2020, uh, had a provision for $4 billion in rental assistance. And then uh, the CARES Act went through a series of uh, moratorium deadlines coming and then getting extended. And then the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention instituted a, a wider ranging ban on evictions in September of 2020. And then in December of 2020, the Treasury set aside, uh, I think it was $20, $20 billion. And then a few months later, they uh, allocated a second tranche of 26. So a total of $46.5 billion was allocated in you know, in early 2021, by last summer, a very small amount had been given out. Mm -hmm. And it really only started to accelerate. Um, you know, it, it took a while for the money to start flowing. And now as we approach September, that, that money will is expected to have all been given out. So and the distribution channels were a bit wonky. Um, 
there was some conversation and discussion in Washington about how best to distribute that money. And it was determined that the best way to do that was through a combination of charitable organizations and in some cases, private organizations. But like a tenant that we talked to in Southern California, her money got to her through the United Way. And that was a pretty hmm. typical scenario, I think, in California. In Texas, we spoke with somebody whose rent relief was distributed through the Salvation Army. Manuela Tobias, housing reporter at Cal Matters. You know, when we talk about evictions here in California, how many people are we talking about and how did the numbers change during the pandemic? So as Aaron described earlier, it's um, when we're talking about evictions, it's really hard to track these down um, because a lot of these happen informally. Um, they're not really recorded anywhere. What we can track are evictions that take place at the courthouse. Um, so that means that they reach a certain level Um and the landlord actually takes the case to court um, and uh, files uh, what is called an unlawful detainer. So the latest data that we have for that statewide, um, again, it's an undercount, um, was almost 36,000 um, unlawful detainers were filed between July 1st, 2020 and June 30th, 2021. Um, so that's about a year ago already. Um, but to put that in context, um, the pre-COVID, the last pre-COVID data mm -hmm. that we have is from uh, 2018, 2019, where we saw about 129,000 complaints filed. Um, again, we don't know the result of those, but um, that's almost three and a half times as many. So we wow. definitely saw a fall, but given um, you know the way that many politici politicians were talking about a full-on eviction moratorium, um, we can see that thousands of tenants still fell through that safety net. Mm -hmm. We're talking about evictions during the pandemic and what could happen now that many renter protection programs and relief programs are ending. We're joined by Manuela Tobias, housing reporter at Cal Matters, Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter at KQED and co-host of Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, and Bonnie Bertram, producer and writer with Retro Report, who partnered with Frontline on a new documentary debuts today called Facing Eviction. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about evictions during this trans-pandemic period and what could happen now that many renter protections and relief programs are ending. We're joined by Aaron Baldessari, co-host of Sold Out Rethinking Housing in America, KQED podcast. Last season uh, was all about eviction. Manuela Tobias, a housing reporter with Cal Matters, and Bonnie Bertrand, producer and writer with Retro Report, who partnered with Frontline on the documentary Facing Eviction, which debuts today. We do want to hear from you. I mean, have you been involved in an eviction, either getting evicted or uh, or executing in uh, an eviction? What was your experience like? Or maybe tell us about your struggles with housing during the pandemic. Did you participate in or apply for the rental relief program, as we heard earlier It was pretty complicated, and it took a while to actually get the money out. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. It's KQED Forum. Or you can email your story to forum at kqed.org. I want to bring in Katie in Sonoma County. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So I always thank you for this topic. Um, I'm one of those people, our, my family, we owned a very small rental, a house with a, an apartment. And uh, we had owned it many years, had the same tenants. We kept our rent low so our tenants could stay because particularly one had financial challenges. And we decided to move in and uh, went through a very generous eviction process in terms of time and, and helping them. One tenant was very helpful, and another decided to fight the eviction, uh, not officially, but unofficially, by stopping paying rent. Uh, We ended up um, being owed thousands of dollars of lost rent and also damage to the property. And we just decided to drop that because it wasn't worth going after this person who we knew. It It would just be so ugly. But I think sometimes it's really hard if you're what people call like a mom and pop kind of owner like us and you're doing it very well and legitimately and you still have lots of problems including several thousand dollars that we'll never recoup and i just wonder how uh people deal with that yeah was this during the pandemic and did you apply for rental relief in this situation no we did not apply for rental relief it was during the pandemic Mm. And was that just because you felt like the bureaucratic hassles or overhead or like how did how did you come to that decision? Well, we were not evicting because of the pandemic. We were mm-hmm. evicting because we were moving in. Uh, and, got it. But the, the tenant who gave us problems cited the pandemic, even though he was not that person was not losing work because of COVID or had had COVID. So it was an excuse to leave us holding the bag on several thousand dollars, which quite frankly, we just really couldn't afford. But also we just didn't want to go through that ugly scenario of going to court because it's very difficult and very expensive. Yeah. Uh, Katie, thanks so much for uh, for sharing that experience with us. You know, Aaron Baldessari, I know, you know, in your podcast, you talk to people like Katie, mom, pop landlords. Of course, there's whole other tranches of landlords, big corporations and other things. Um, what kinds of situations do people find themselves in? Is Katie's experience somewhat typical? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we know that um, smaller landlords make up a huge portion of all landlords um, in California and, and nationally, um, and and her experience was was not 
uh, unique. Um, you know, I think we hear from a lot of smaller landlords that evictions, you know, it's, it's usually their last resort because they are so ugly and no one wants to be the person who kicks someone out and, and puts the, you know, their tenant uh, or former tenant in a, in a bad situation. Um, and you know, it's, it's an emotional process. Oftentimes, you know, you have relationships with your tenants, you know, that, you know, you know them, you've known them for a number of years. And so there is this kind of um, emotional dynamic and there's actually some, you know, good research that looks at kind of, um, you know, landlord behavior more generally and finds that smaller landlords are more reticent to evict. Um, they typically wait longer before starting an eviction proceeding, uh, particularly if there's misrent or they, they recognize that their tenant is going through a hard time. Um, and, you know, larger landlords tend to be quicker to evict. They're just more used to the process. They, uh, you know, have in-house legal teams and that sort of thing that can help them. Um, you know, and then there was also just, you know, some research looking at landlords generally and how they fared during the pandemic. Um, you know, it was clear that uh, landlords um, lost revenue. Uh, there's a report from J.P. Morgan Chase that that showed that you know uh, revenues were were typically down for landlords, but they also cut back on expenses. So they kind of tended to uh, defer repairs and um, you know major renovations and that sort of thing. And so, as a whole, um, what what J.P. Morgan Chase found was that at the end of May 2021, uh, expenses were down more than than revenues. So um, landlords actually were still kind of making money um, in the hmm. process, but the individual cases are certainly, uh, you know, I'm, you could find lots of landlords who who lost a lot of money during this this time. Yeah. Let's bring in Lee from San Francisco. Welcome, Lee. Hi. Um, I'm calling to share my experience about how not everyone is actually having it go through. Um, the formal eviction process. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, go ahead. Some of us have experienced where our stuff, we showed up and our stuff was thrown away. Hmm. Um, and so I you, yeah, what, hap what happened? Yeah. Um, well, I showed up one day from work and all my stuff was thrown away for an illegal eviction. And you just, so it was just, you were locked out? Highlighted. And yeah. this is, I'm not the only person that experienced that. Yeah. And I just, you know, it's sad that there's only 26,000 unlawful detainers because there's so many more people that have just shown up with their locks changed. And then because the cops didn't like Chelsea Boudin, you know, they're not even writing police reports or opening to see, you know, what belonged to whom. They just call it a civil issue and then who's litigating it. Mm. So I literally had to find a, a home and a bed. And I went to work 40 hours a week, and then I had to wait to make enough money because inflation was going up um, to actually get a bed. So I first started with a rug, and then I got a pad on top of the rug. Mm. And then eventually I was able to get a bed. So were you, did you have any communication from the landlord? Or like you literally went to work like on Tuesday morning, and you got home oh, in the yeah. afternoon? Well, I mean, I communicated with them. I actually, actually giving them the formal paperwork was what caused the illegal lockout. I mean, well, imagine I had legal representation because it was starting to get sketchy after talking to the tenants' union, mm -hmm. after having litigation, and they still took all of my stuff and threw it away. All of it, sir. Like, imagine everything that you have at home, 
And then imagine all of that not being there. They actually broke into my room and started doing um, major construction. So it was not even possible for me to get back in. Mm. Oh, man. And then I lost my job because I was working from home. And I had no way to get in to work. I'm so So sorry. It's actually really affected my entire life. I'm listening to NPR, and it's just like you're only talking about people that have had their landlords follow due process. I'm a paralegal. Imagine this is happening to a civil litigation paralegal, all of this. Mm. You know, imagine everyone's like, call the cops. I call the cops. They... They are like, I'm not breaking down a changed lock to confirm whether you live here. Mm. All I'm going to do is make note in my notes that I observe a door that you don't have keys to. Ugh. Man, Leah, I'm, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And So I just really want to highlight when you guys are talking about how there's 26,000 this and 126,000 that. When everyone kept saying that no one was going to do anything, some folks were emboldened enough to say, who's going to get me in trouble? Mm -hmm. I'm just going to change your locks and keys. And what if I told you this is the second time this has happened to me, sir, and I'm just like an orphan from Marin. Mm. Like, I'm just an orphan from Marin. I'm I'm not, I'm not, you know, struggling with addiction or anything. You know, I'm not struggling with anything other maybe than mental health, okay? So that's the cross that I bear, and this is what I'm experiencing. So I was, like, very overwhelmed to hear you guys were talking about this because it's like I know that if it's happening to me, I'm going to be – am I on the radio? Yeah, you are. Oh, my gosh. If it's happening to me, it's happening to somebody else. And um, I really want to shed light on folks that are experiencing this. Not everyone's following the rules. People can call the tenants union. People can have an attorney. I mean – I worked for the government, I had litigation insurance, and I still had my locks changed. Yeah. Lee, and I, I want to... Um, and I'm sleeping on the floor. Yeah. Um, stay on the line uh, with us. We have someone who, who wants to connect with you about something. So if you can stay on the line. Um, I want to um, ask, you know, Aaron Baldessari, thanks, thanks again, Lee. Um, Aaron Baldessari, uh, you know, when we hear situation like that where someone didn't follow the rules or, uh, you know, uh, according to what Lee was telling us, like, how, obviously that isn't that can't be tracked as officially as these other things. But what do we know about that kind of eviction? Well, we know that um, that. This is a, a serious issue. Um, the Department of Justice actually uh, came out uh, of California, came out earlier this month um, to issue some legal guidance to police departments on how to respond in these types of situations, because we know that, you know, Lee's situation is is very common. Uh, police department, you know, police officers show up to these cases and they, you know, often say, look, there's nothing we can do. This is a civil matter. Um, and so Attorney General Rob Bonta said, look, Police should have some kind of role here um, because they have also been uh, fielding a significant number of, of similar types of reports. And and also, you know, just, you know, from what I've heard from from tenant advocates, um, you know, this was something that they really saw increase during the pandemic because you know, I think just a lot of landlords were frustrated with you know, the inability to evict, the inability to collect rent. They were seeing, you know, um, 
they were getting stretched thin finance financially and felt like they had to take matters into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, Bonta's office issued some instructions to sheriff and police departments that look, they should inform the landlords that what they're doing is illegal. It could be subject to a misdemeanor. Um, they you know, need to file reports and, and take a number mm-hmm. of other actions. But when I called the California Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training, they said, look, we don't provide training on, on illegal eviction cases. It's up to the individual agencies to decide how to respond. And so I think there's just a lot of inconsistency out there and not a lot of guidance for how police officers should intervene in those situations. Mm-hmm. You know, Bonnie, in your documentary, uh, there was a woman, June, um, in New Jersey who had uh, not exactly the same situation, but another one of these kind of complex, messy situations in which it wasn't totally clear what was happening. Can you tell us a little bit more about that situation and what you learned from it? So June worked an overnight shift because during the pandemic, like so many people, she was just struggling to make ends meet. And, you know, when you work an overnight shift, it's disoriented during the day, your your whole life is sort of flipped upside down. So she had been, she told us she'd been living in an apartment for a year and a half and been paying rent and that she fell behind a month and a half when the pandemic hit. And then her landlord went to court. New Jersey wasn't allowing evictions, but they were allowing something called ejectments. So her landlord tried to prove that she was not a legal tenant by saying her name was not on the lease. So uh, she, the constables came, said, we're here to kick you out. And she said, wait, I have a lease. And the sheriffs in New Jersey were like, okay, we're going to, you know, we won't, we won't execute this. We'll ask you to go back to court. So she gets a zoom hearing and and getting the zoom hearing was hard. It was hard to Mm -hmm. get the administrative office on the line to figure out when it was. So the zoom hearing is set. She runs an errand to the store. And so she's late. So she's in her car. When the zoom hearing starts, she starts the, the, she figures out a way to log in. And the judge says, well, present me your lease. Let me see your lease with your name on it. And she says, I'm in the car. And the judge says, well, uh, tough luck, basically. Uh, Good luck and stay safe. And he moves to evict her. And sure enough, she gets evicted. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the assumption that people like June and people like Lee, who are so resilient, have a hard time navigating this stuff is a sign that things aren't really working like they should. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to say something, too, about Lee's situation um, and also something, too, that Manuela said. We work closely with the Eviction Lab, which is a group of sociologists and researchers out of Princeton, and they do a really good job of, of collecting the data that they can because it is hard to document this. Right, it kind of grew out of the Matthew Desmond book, Evicted, right? It's kind it's of an amazing book. Yeah. And, and you know, he, he lives with people and, and like the same thing. He sort of shows evictions from the landlord side and from the tenant side. And he makes the case that, you know, like Lee's experience, that once you lose home, home is so foundational that it, and I think too, that Aaron had touched on this, that there's a cascading effect of like your children's schooling gets disrupted. It's hard for you to get another job because like, I think in Lee's case, she wasn't able to work from home because she didn't have a home, but even just getting paperwork sent to you. So it it leads to this cascading problem that only makes things worse. Manuela, you know, this is obviously a, a, a problem that state policymakers, particularly those who are know that we're dealing with a homelessness crisis here in the state of California and basically every major city and even some small ones, 
and they want to keep people in their homes. What do we see in, in terms of the actual actions that they're they're taking to try to prevent evictions or help people coming out of evictions to find the next? Like, what are the policy solutions they're kind of looking at? Yeah, so um, I guess just to these last two years um, is when I think that um, trying to prevent evictions really took um, a pretty central role in in housing policy as a you know um, direct response to COVID. And so initially we saw um, the the judicial council. Um, sort of halt all eviction proceedings right when um, the pandemic broke out. This was around April of 2020. Um, and lawmakers actually um, passed, I think in total, it was four, um, four different uh, laws extending, well, putting in place and then extending eviction protections over non-payment of rent. Um, and so um, for over two years, um, there were um, these statewide uh, policies to try to keep people in their homes. Um, and so initially it was over um, anyone who, um, you know, had been affected by COVID um, and couldn't pay rent, um, couldn't be evicted over that. And then for um, another series of months through September of last year, it was if you could pay a quarter of your rent, um, you couldn't be uh, evicted if you had been affected by COVID. Um, but politically trying to extend that past September of last year mm -hmm. proved impossible. Mm -hmm. And even tenant advocates, um, you know, knew that there wasn't uh, too much of a chance to keep going with that on a statewide level. Yeah. Um because they were also getting a lot of pressure from, um, you know, landlord groups saying we need to evict, this can't go on forever. And so what we saw at the end was a coupling with um, the rent relief program um, that we mentioned earlier, California got um, more than um, the state, the state program got more than $4 billion um, to, to pay tenants um, missed back rent. And so what happened was the, the state policy was combined with that to, um, to pause an eviction proceeding if someone was receiving rent relief. Um, so we definitely... Mm -hmm. Might need to pause there. We're talking about evictions during the pandemic and what could happen now that many renter protections and relief programs are ending with Manuela Tobias, housing reporter at CalMatters, Bonnie Bertram, producer and, report and writer with Retro Report, who partnered on a new documentary, Facing Eviction, and Aaron Baldessari, housing affordability reporter here at KQED. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about evictions during the pandemic. What could happen now? Joined by Aaron Baldessari, KQD's own housing affordability reporter and co-host of Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America, that podcast. Uh, Manuela Tobias, housing reporter at Cal Matters, and Barney, uh, Bonnie Bertram, producer and writer with Retro Report. They've got a new documentary out with Frontline called Facing Eviction, debuts today. We're also getting a lot of calls and comments uh, from people who've been involved on the different sides of evictions. Um, Daisy writes, I was evicted two years before COVID. My partner and I were long-term renters and the owner decided to sell. I was in my third trimester of pregnancy at the time. We planned to move before the new owners took ownership, but the baby came early. We still had two months left in the lease. The new owners harassed us continuously. It was illegal. We looked in legal resources, but we had a newborn and no time. And the easiest thing to do was move. It was an incredibly stressful time. We were fortunate to have the resources to find a new place. We're educated, middle-class, full-time working professionals. I can't imagine what it's like for others with less resources. Uh, Bill writes, if the government wants to prevent evictions, they should pay rent for those who can't. Forcing landlords to do so is nothing short of theft from property owners. And Lady tweets, uh, or actually another listener tweets, the previous owner of my small building had to sell due to lack of rent paid by some tenants during the pandemic and inability to evict. Not only was the tenant not paying rent, they were harassing and threatening other tenants, which continues to this day. Some evictions are necessary. Let's bring in Mary from Hayward into the show. Welcome, Mary. Hi. Can you hear me? I sure can. Go ahead. Okay, so one thing um, that's not being addressed is all the rental assistance programs that were available to tenants during the COVID, during that period of time, are only available to them if the landlord participates in the process and if they agree to submit the documentation, the financial, you know, uh, to prove that they're, they've been renting, all those kinds of things. My particular situation was um, I made arrangements with the landlord knowing that I had been laid off, that I was going to be paying rent, but I wouldn't have it on time because my my, uh, checks were being split up different times of the month. Mm -hmm. So I was paying rent the whole time, um, always making it, but not at the same time. Um, Very diligent about that. My landlord did things like locked me out of the basement where the heating systems were, where the hot water heater was, um, not fixing things. The sewage was, went bad. There was raw sewage downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, coming to my house and, um, you know, pushing me around. I was not able to use any of the eviction defense people because I had not been served with formal eviction yet. And I'm still in the process. I'm disabled. I, I don't know what to do. I don't have resources to get help. And, you know, what do you do? What, mm-hmm. I mean, these, I have no, no recourse. Yeah. Aaron, Aaron Baldessari, who can help Mary and Hayward? Well, you know, um, landlord harassment um, and, and this type of behavior, you know, appears to me, obviously I don't know all the details of the case, but appears to me as a form of landlord harassment is 
illegal. Um, there is a state law um, that prohibits landlord harassment and depending on the jurisdiction, I'm not sure uh, where the caller lives, but um, you know, city, different cities in, around the Bay Area and across California have additional protections um, for people who are experiencing harassment from landlords. Um, there can be uh, civil penalties um, depending on the jurisdiction where you live. In some cases, that can be, you know, $2,000. I think it's up to $10,000 in Los Angeles. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would get in touch with um, a, a legal aid organization. Um, if you're in the Bay Area, Bay Area Legal Aid has... has yeah, she's down there in, in Hayward. In, so in Hayward. County. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Thank you. Um, so, um, you know, contact um, some legal aid organizations near you. Um, I know the eviction... Defense uh, Center or, or Collaborative in um, Oakland has some assistance. Um, and we have some resources on our website, kqed.org. If you uh, put that in with uh, eviction help, you'll see a list of organizations in your or Mary, area. you can also uh, give our uh, producer your email address and we can we can send you some stuff after the show. Absolutely. Thanks. Um, thanks so much, Mary, for, uh, for sharing that experience. Um, wanted to bring in uh, another call, Garrett in Oakland. Welcome, Garrett. Yes, thank you. Uh, I've lost about $22,000 minimum the last year and a half from tenants uh, not being able to be evicted. Uh, I obey the law, and the courts in Alameda County and Kern County would not evict anybody, even if they had a good job, were not affected by COVID, and would not pay rent. They knew they, they wouldn't, couldn't get evicted. They blocked the sale of my dead friend's house for about Six months, which cost us tons of money with an empty apartment there where he died, where he lived in his own triplex. I could go on and on. I tried to get money from the Kern County Housing Authority for the tenant who was out of work voluntarily, but out of work. And she didn't, didn't, wouldn't apply with me for three or four months. When I found out I could possibly evict her with that, she finally applied. It took a year to get $6,000, and she never paid her quarter of it. She still has. I finally got her to move out just by begging her. And uh, so I had another tenant. I couldn't evict them, and they did $6,000 of damage to the property. You cannot collect from the tenants. The tenants can move and be hide, and you can't find them to collect the money. It wouldn't even matter if I could evict in normal time because you have to pay the attorneys thousands of dollars to evict. And then you can't collect from the tenant. So the tenants always have every right and every legal power over you. And I can't believe there's more than 1% of maybe one-tenth of 1% of of landlords who dare only because of COVID to do their own evictions without legal protection because they can be sued and they should be sued for breaking the law. But the truth is we don't have law. The courts refuse to evict unless it's a danger to other people or a health matter that, in other words, sewage all over their front porch. Well, I mean, so, it seems like there are, you know, evictions that go through. I agree that the number sounds, you know, uh, rather small. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Garrett, I mean, what does that $22,000 like mean to you? Like, how does it change your life? Well, I'm 77 and that's what I live on. And I have to pay mortgages on each of these properties. Mm-hmm. So I go into the hole and I, I don't have cash flow. It's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm relatively well off, but still, 
And it means I've sold my properties. I just sold uh, a house in Oakland I had for 20 years because I can't afford to keep it up. Yeah. I'm worried about rent control and the coming recession. Property values are going to crash, and lenders are going to be screwed right and left. Yeah. I went through that in 2008 and nine and lost hundreds of thousands of dollars because yeah. the property values crashed, and I couldn't even get tenants. Uh, you know, the, you have to look at the long view, and we have to protect landlords, or we're not going to have housing for everybody. We're going to have homeless people. Yeah. Garrett, thanks for uh, sharing your experience. And I was, you know, uh, Manuela uh, Tobias, housing reporter with Cal Matters. You know, I was curious what we know. Uh, looking across California, you know, there's a, a variety of different kinds of tenant protections in, in different places. What do we know about the relationship between those tenant protections and housing supply? Like, is there, uh, I, I'll ask it even more specifically, in places where there's fewer tenant protections, does it seem like there's more housing supply based on the available evidence, or does that relationship not exist? Yeah, that's a really interesting um, question. I actually haven't really looked at that correlation. Um, but when we're thinking about the tenant protections um, that exist right now, um, it's interesting because San Francisco and LA um, City two places that we often look at um, as having uh, really high housing prices um, and, and where it's pretty hard to uh, find a place to rent, um, have very strong protections. Um, LA, in fact, some of the strongest. Um, so um, right now, starting July 1st, uh, anyone in uh, LA City who can't pay their rent um, who is making below uh, $95,000 are protected from eviction going forward. Um, not going backwards because of some of these other state laws around eviction protections. Um, in San Francisco, it's similar. Um, landlords are prohibited from evicting any tenant for non-payment of rent that came due on or after July 1st, 2022. So you do see some correlation um, in part probably because of the pressure um, of, of these of these housing markets. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie, I wanted to ask you, you know, this was kind of the CDC's moratorium and the federal rental relief uh, program that rolled out in the Trump administration. This was pretty unprecedented experiment. And you looked at it in different states. You talked to the eviction lab folks who, you know, are obviously uh, both helped with the rollout of the program as well as have, have thought about how this could work. What do you think are the lessons that should be drawn from this really, uh, you know, intense intervention in the rental market? Well, it's interesting because today's discussion sort of highlighted something that I think the pandemic brought to the fore, and that is this relationship between landlords and tenants. Because most landlords, like Garrett, who are behind in rent, they don't really want to lose the tenant because then they lose the ability to to claw back some of that lost rent because those programs mandate that landlords and tenants work together, as somebody else mentioned. So we concentrated a lot of our reporting in Texas. And while Texas did a lot of strange things, like, you know, uh, like the judge who, who talked about the uh, the federal judge there who ruled the CDC moratorium was unconstitutional. They also did something that was pretty good and is being considered as a potential um, 
outcome going forward out of the pandemic. And, and that is this um, eviction diversion program. And that mandates that judges have to tell plaintiffs and defendants, landlords and, and tenants, that um, if they agree to participate in this program, it sort of calms everything down and chills things out and gives them an additional 60 days to try to work through a payment plan or some sort of process that allows the tenant to stay and the landlord to get some of the lost money. Um, so, so that is maybe some silver lining that came out of this unusual attention on housing policy in the United States from the pandemic, which is what we cover in, uh, in facing eviction. Aaron Baldessari, uh, same, same question to you. Based on what you've seen about these pandemic protections and their kind of unprecedented nature, like what have you what do you think we've learned from this period? You know, I mean, as as problematic as the emergency rent relief programs were, um, they were still, you know, they were still really impactful for the people who got that money. And we know that the best way to solve homelessness is really to prevent people from becoming homeless in the first place. And in a state like California, where we have this massive backlog of people experiencing homelessness who need to get in housing, the best thing that we can do as a state is really try to prevent more people from being added to that backlog. There's um, some federal efforts, the Stable Families Act uh, by a, a Democrat from New York, uh, that would you know, create a permanent source of emergency rental assistance. Um, it's proposed at $3 billion. Um, I don't follow Washington, you know, I'm not sure exactly where that stands uh, in Washington, but, um, you know, a program like that in California would be incredibly impactful in terms of keeping people in their homes. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, Pat in Brisbane. Welcome. Uh, I'm Pat, but I'm in Marin County. <laughs> oh, you're in Marin. Okay, my apologies. Pat in yeah. Marin County. Okay, so I've been on both sides of the equation. I um, owned my own home in Marin for 34 years. Um, we had to, uh, because I became disabled, um, we wound up uh, upside down in our mortgage and uh, because we had to take a lot of money out. And uh, we had also at the same time a house in another county and I had a tenant who destroyed the house, and I got a judgment but could never collect. Um, and I, I was, you know, definitely middle class, middle income. But everything went upside down when I became disabled. Now, during um, in the last 10 years, so we lost our home in 2012, and 10, the last 10 years have been a nightmare, um, not the least of which is my husband took his life, and um, unfortunately, uh after 30 years of marriage, he took his life um, because of all this loss in our life financially and what we were facing being in our 60s. And we wound up having to become renters. Now I'm on the other side of the equation. And I had the landlord at, at the apartments I've been in now for nine years, but the landlord is like a hair trigger on evictions. Um, he was uh, he immediately posted for an eviction within 60 days of my husband's death. Um, and I had to go through just very traumatic <laughs> court situations. 
I really see and hear both sides of it. I think it's really hard, like having that one property um, and having a loss like I took years ago. Um, I never got to, you know, get that money back. And on the other side of it, I'm I'm always in fear. Um, uh, you know, as as now I'm going into my seventies, uh, I'm in fear of losing my housing. Um, I am not able to work right at the moment, and I had some housing uh, assistance from family and that is running out. So, mm. um, you know, this is just a nightmare right yeah. now in the state of California to, to rent an apartment for, especially for single older people. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tough situation on both sides. Pat, what do you think you're going to do? You think you're going to leave the area and try and find a place with a lower cost of living? Um, I don't know how I could put that together. I live on $1,200 a month mm. plus plus housing assistance when when I've been able to have it. And now I'm facing, as I mentioned, you know, just uh, that that petering out. And uh, if I can't physically work, I'm I don't know what I'm going to do. I would become homeless. Mm. So, you know, it's hard to have been in the uh, earning two hundred thousand dollars a year 20 years ago and now being completely upside down and being a completely at the whim of a, na- a very nasty landlord. He just he doesn't care at all about his tenants. So, oh, man. you know, it, and I pay twenty four hundred dollars a month mm. for apartment. <laughs> you know, it, it's enormous. Yeah. Pat, thanks for sharing your experience. I'm sorry to, gosh, that's a scary, scary position to be in. And, and thanks for uh, talking with us. I, you know, Bonnie, Bertram, you know, you've, you dealt with all sides of this eviction experience, you know, kind of like Pat was just telling us, you know, there, there are, this is obviously complex. There's different actors involved. What do you, what do you take away from it? Just give you the last word here on the program. I think that, As Emily Benfer from the Eviction Lab says in our piece, we don't have a housing policy in this country. We have an eviction policy. And I think what we figured out in our reporting was that from all points of view, from the constables, the landlords, the tenants, the judges, the relief workers, it's just a bad situation that needs to be addressed. We need to have a better way to figure out how tenants can pay rent and, and have an affordable, stable place to live. So people like Pat don't feel insecure for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last couple comments from listeners. Mike writes, the slow and inept rollout of the California COVID-19 rent relief program has been as much a hassle as losing my job to the pandemic. My landlord still waits for payments for September 2021 to March of this year. At this point, a new job is requiring relocating, and I believe this issue will hinder my approval of a new unit. So many tough situations on today's show. Thanks for sharing them with us. We've been talking about evictions during the pandemic and what could happen now that many protections and relief programs are ending. We've been joined by Bonnie Bertram, producer and writer with Retro Report, who partnered with Frontline on a new documentary debuts today, Facing Eviction. Thanks for the work and thanks for coming on, Bonnie. Thank you. It's a pleasure. We've also been joined by Manuela Tobias, a housing reporter at CalMatters. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for having me. And our own Erin Baldessari, housing affordability reporter at KQD. If you like what you heard from her today, you got to listen to the podcast Sold Out, Rethinking Housing in America. Thank you, Erin. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.